Hi, um, welcome back to Basco Chronicles, my podcast. Um, it's like a next episode where I actually talk about growing up around Maoists and um, the Maoist insurgency and like understanding what it meant to be quote unquote Maoist in Nepal. I mean, not this is not like a like a end all be all description of, of Maoists. Um, this was just a revolutionary Maoists of Nepal that, you know, while their movement had some validity in their in their origins, uh, that validity was struck down later on by their own leaders. So somewhere in, in the beginning of the 1990s, this was before I was even born, um, there had been a guerrilla movement that, that grew in Nepal. Uh, the Maoist movement. It was the Nepalese Liberation Army um, under the Maoist party which had gone into hiding. They were very much inspired by the communist guerrillas um, to the south, the Naxalites to be precise. Uh, the Naxalites got disbanded around the 60s and their movement was crushed and even now you have some uh, supporters of the Nexalite movement and um, the Adivasi movement, um, which was basically the most exploited, um, almost like modern era serfs, uh, people who had uh, who had to depend on their landlord for food, for shelter, for a work a week's pay. Um, and people that were almost enslaved um, because of debt from their uh, grandfathers or fathers and so on. If you could not pay your debt oh, to your grandfather or father, you were uh, subjected to kind of like uh, almost um, penal labor under these landlords. And though it was extrajudicial because uh, none of the laws in India or in Nepal at that time permitted uh, such um, economic transactions where like if you if you cannot pay if you can never pay off the debt that you know your granddad's or your dad had that you had to work for us under these um, circumstances under like you cannot quit your job obviously you live on the land that is owned by the landlord you live in your little shack um, you're going to grow up working for the landlord and your children, your children's children are all going to work for the landlord and basically that's all their lives was, you know, uh, destined to be. And interestingly enough, such was the case in certain parts of Nepal, especially among the Kamaya communities, which was which, you know, as a system it was abolished, but uh, there were a lot of people, uh, the Kamayas, that were still working for landlords. Uh, and especially um, rich people in the capital used to keep a lot of Kamaya servants. Uh, Kamayas, as a caste of people, would wear um, people that were said to have been born into debt, their whole caste apparently was born into debt so they had to like service um, whoever would pay off that debt or whoever that debt was owed to and so you had like a generation after generation of penal slaves in Nepal just like the Kamayas 
you also had the rural farmers of Nepal that uh, were pretty much on the same boat. Like, they did not own their own land. And even if they did own their own land, there was nothing in value compared to uh, land elsewhere. So they could not just sell the land and try to find another trade. They had to work on the land that was theirs. Um, we're also talking about a country that was mostly illiterate. Uh, if you could just read and write in Nepali, uh, I mean, English was just like an exotic thing. But if you could just like write, read and write in Nepali, that was a big deal. Only 41% of the population to this day can uh, read and write in Nepal, as I speak. And I'm talking in 2018. Um, Also, the uh, monarchy uh, was always popular in Nepal. I mean, even is to this day. I, uh, I mean, I won't call it popularity. It's just uh, there was this security in having the last Hindu king. Um, Hinduism has, for most of its history, always, um, always thrived on the idea of kings and queens uh, it's all it's all over hindu mythology the bhagavad gita the mahabharata the entire like the longest epic poem in the history of the world is the mahabharata which is a hindu scripture of hindu mythology and like you have talk of kings and uh, it's always the kingly figures uh, the princess uh, or the princesses or you know like the prince um the king, which who, who needs wise counsel from uh, a former uh, goat herder turned king, uh, you know. So like uh, this whole culture uh, with with a monarch um, always being that 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 wise counsel or that 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 uh, figurehead that you needed was very embedded into the culture. Um, especially the fact that, you know, it had never actually seen a real, like, democratic process. Um, it was in the 1960s again. This was when the Maoist uh, movement was not quite developed because that was, uh, Mao Zedong was in China at that time. And, you know. But there was a, a, a presence of, of uh, small communist parties that you know try to um, organize the working class in order to overthrow monarchies and so on and there was like the democratic socialists at that time or social democrats uh, the nepali congress um, which was supported hugely by politics in india as you know they wanted to liberalize nepal's economy while trying to liberalize their own economy um, but somewhere there was a disconnect because India at that time had not grown uh, apart from its, uh, its uh, democratic socialist roots or its socialist roots. I mean, in the constitution of India, India is defined as a socialist country. Now, if you tell that to people in India, they will probably have a great laugh, but that's what it was. So inspired by the Indian constitution itself, uh, a lot of Nepali uh, youth, mostly, that was uh, active in the political movements of that time 
drew upon this、um, idea of Marxist-Leninist as socialism or communism in order to、um, establish a, a quote-unquote new Nepal. Nowadays, it's an empty slogan. Naya Nepal.、Like、everybody throws it out, like、uh, you know, it's it has lost all meaning and it's devoid of it. It's just one of those dead slogans. However, it was coined by by these early on radicals,、um, most of them who happen to be leftists.、Um, so there was like two、uh, schools of thought in there. There was a democratic socialist school of thought, and there was like a communist school of thought. And of course, the status quo—the people that liked the monarchy—were always there.、Um, so King Mahendra of Nepal, who was given、um, a big welcome actually when he came to America by Lyndon B. Johnson,、um, a big welcome when he visited London too.、Uh, he was a He was a larger-than-life、uh, figure, if you ask Nepali people. The Mahendra of Nepal was almost,、uh, you know, a, a legendary figure now.、Um, but he enacted this ban on political parties. So these factions, both of them, the Democratic Socialist faction of, of, of Nepali Congress and the different communist factions,、um, were all banned. Uh, you could not form a political party.、Uh, there would be local elections, but it will be selected by the king,、um, uh, who could represent what districts and what areas, what zones, primar- pr- primarily. These were、um, handpicked by the king, of course. And、uh, and resistance started to grow naturally.、Um, and、uh, after Ten years of struggle、uh, and an alliance between the Democratic Socialists,、uh, the Congress Party, and、uh, the Marxist-Leninist、um, Party,、um, the Marxist-Leninist Alliance (MLA) or MLA, as、uh, they're popular among Nepali folks, they did form an alliance later on. I mean, there were、uh, smaller parties involved, but it was mostly these two major parties、uh, that. Actually, struggled in, spent nights in in prison. A lot of them ended up death, the dead.、Uh, there were few attempts on the life of 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 the king, mostly by the communist faction. And、um, it also、um, uh, translated into the conscience of a growing、um, youth of that time. The The people that were 15, 16, 17 at that time during the transformation, such as my father and my mother,、um, and、uh, my granddad, who was all, almost politically active at that time,、um, to actually see this、uh, new surge in like democratic feeling, which was very opposite to the kind of reactionary.、Um, Feelings that you had when the Maoist movement actually came about. So it was also the climate itself of this 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 mountain country, this isolated country that、um, was pretty much、uh, a hippie destination.、Um, you know, that was、uh, it was depending upon、uh, tourism a lot,、uh, still is, and、uh, it was de- depending a lot on remittances even back then. Now it has just surged, but this this country's economy, in and of itself,
was not enough to sustain a monarch. It it would it, it would have come naturally uh, to get rid of the monarchy. Um, but the democratic socialists, the Nepali Congress, um, they they did hash out a deal um, to let the monarch stay. Um, given that these uh, powers are granted. So Mahendra's son, King Birendra, when he ascended to the throne, uh, a referendum was called uh, about the ban on political parties, and the ban on political parties would be lifted after the referendum, and there would be a constitutional monarchy installed. And there were four people on that council uh, to draft this new constitution. One of them was a distant relative of mine, um, Krishna Prasad. Uh, he was called the the saint politician because he was um, he was very religious, uh, religious minded, and um, he seemed he was a well educated man. Uh, went to Banaras, Varanasi, India to uh, study, and uh, he was always uh, regarded as an intellectual. And also a very like uh, Winston Churchill kind of figure. He was he was very conservative in his politics. Um, also very ruthless. Uh, um, I mean, there was of course not not a lot of like crimes against humanity committed by you know uh, by Krishna Prasad like Winston Churchill. Like there was yeah, but. He did seem very familiar with that thought because I remember um, going into the house that he used to live in Kupando Lalitpur uh, in Nepal. Uh, you could see like a lot of writings that he had about Winston Churchill, and uh, and he did like try to emulate him. I think so. I, I'm not very sure, but yeah, that's uh, that's the vibe I got from him. And he, as a central figure in Nepali politics, I mean there were plenty. But him in particular, I have always found it very, very interesting because he did embody the spirit of 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 the working class people of that time because they were um, living under a Hindu king. And Hinduism, although not as radical as as India's like Hindu fundamentalist uh, mobs that go around lynching. Muslim people on like suspicion of um, of eating beef, these people were um, actually just religious folk of of the working class of the working class background, um, and they held him very dearly. Now, when I say that Krishna Prasad kind of emulated the country spirit at the time, um, I, I want to be clear and to say that. All of the four people that sat to draft the constitution, right? These were people of my caste, the Brahmin caste, the highest caste. Uh, the caste system, although not as rigid as it was in India, uh, still is in India, it was very, very much a, a, a conversation about power. Um, uh, being high caste is akin to whiteness in America. Um, being that kind of like uh, having that access to whiteness was uh, you know having that access to the to the Brahmin caste, uh, which I did fairly enjoy that privilege. I'll be honest, but um, 
even even if you remove that and you had this this um this outlook of like materialistic like just 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 a um the class dynamics they were not working class folks even though they 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 presumed to speak for working class folks these were upper middle class um people that you know had some odd uh, relationships with the monarchy itself that ended up in power this <laughs> greatly angered certain sects of uh, communists during that time i mean it was just you know uh it was it was betrayal it was de- definitely betrayal to see that you know these officials that were um finally elected into office uh, were all brahmin they were all rich men oh, and women too rich men and women that that were now representing in a, in a parliament in a constitutional monarchy the monarchy that was supposed to have been done away with a, a long time ago um, they were still there the powers that be had not had not ceased they had just transformed um which is what what happens uh, when you know you make like uh, like John Kennedy said when you make um peaceful revolutions impossible you make violent revolutions you know it, it comes true it just and that where the seeds were sown um to see this brahmin rich people in parliament was like probably the last straw for a lot of um a lot of uh underprivileged uh nepali people which was most of the population and um during the 70s and 80s um the climates started to shift no one was loyal to the king anymore uh you didn't need to be i mean of course you wouldn't say anything about the king in public but around back doors you know, in, the, in the comfort of your home or like in, in little like debate groups or, or political groups or whatever there was discontent and the 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 public opinion towards leftists towards communism was very popular um and that's when you had the election of um Mohan Bandari and uh, he became prime minister although it was not a general election he was uh, elected in the, in the parliament through a lot of political maneuvering and he was known as the uh the 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 most inspiring revolutionary at that time um who was tragically uh, killed in a car accident um um some people say it was or- orchestrated and um it probably was if you ask me um there's nothing that would convince me that it was just like a mere accident uh but he was killed and uh, a lot of um that actually showed you how unsafe it was to uphold uh, a sort of like a revolutionary um, um conscience in Nepal because Mohan Bandari always said uh, that you know this 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 uh, parliamentary democracy parliamentary um, constitutional mon- monarchy the system is not really designed as per what what was expected uh to to have been after after the political developments of the bygone decade um 
And this decade, this uh, primarily uh, was the time where um, my granddad shaped his politics. He, uh, he became a Trotskyite. He was heavily involved. However, he never actually ran for office or anything. Um, it, was, it was just unsafe. Like, you know, you, there were times when even when just the company that he kept could have, um, could have very well made him disappear. Um, so he was very careful why he treaded on that. And I guess it was like the stories of those times that actually reached out to me and, um, and to actually realize how like hostile to change, or even if it's positive or any kind of change that takes place in a monarchy or, or like in in a totalitarian system. Although it didn't feel like we were in a totalitarian system. Because uh, even when there was a monarchy, uh, people were still getting by, and people were still poor. Uh, and there is this this factor into poverty. Uh, to be raised up in poverty or to live in poverty is, uh, uh, I, I, I hate to say it, but it, there is this uh, autonomy within the working class uh, that is very sacred to the working class. Doesn't matter if you're from, uh, I don't know, Columbus, Ohio, or you know, um, doesn't matter if you're from, like, Kathmandu, Nepal, or, like, you know, Bastar, like, it doesn't matter, it's just the fact that the, that poverty actually, um, gives you, um, this, this, uh, skill, um, to cope, um, and it's not a great skill to have, sometimes you will see that, in interpersonships, uh, this kind of plays out, uh, and it 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 it, it explodes, uh, um, and makes poor people very angry. Um, my granddad always said, "A poor man is an angry man." Uh huh. Yeah, like a hungry man is an angry man. A poor man, he's just mad. He's seeing red, and that's what we did. We saw red, and it was time. It was time. I, uh, it was. It was guerrilla warfare. Um, people took their guns. Boys, 14, 15, 16 years years of age. Boys and girls from rural areas, from villages, would pick up the gun, and and were actively fighting the government uh, at that time. And this was the climate that you know that. Uh, until very early on, I was very inspired by, and uh, by the end of it, it felt like betrayal. But, but I was very inspired by the people and how they had set in motion uh, to take on uh, a system that had been in place for 200, 300 years. Their grandfathers, their fathers' fathers, their forefathers, their grandmothers—they uh, had never envisioned. Uh, a country without a king you know they had never envisioned living in a country without a king where you didn't say prayers for for the king's good health and um but the same brahmin rich men and women that had ended up in the parliament um, decades ago by playing on that strife and you know pulling strings with their royal connections at the same time and duping the working class into getting them into parliament, the Maoist leadership was also the same. It was surrounded by Brahmin men, the figures that, that led uh, 
um, led the revolution, Mohan Baidya, who was uh, inspired by mostly the Bengal uh, Communist Party, the Communist Party in Bengal, and the Naxalites too, um, of course. He became a figurehead in the Maoist movement, he was greatly hunted at that time. Baba Ram Pachai, who also became a prime minister after the dissolving of the monarchy, and Prachanda, um, who was the first prime minister after dissolving of the monarchy. Um, these people actually came into power after the civil war, but, but it was politics as usual. So after 13,000 dead bodies that the war, the, the Maoist insurgency, had, you know, that, that was its body count. 13,000 people dead and missing. Um, you never actually, you were duped. You were, you felt cheated. And so it came naturally um, for, for me, who, who did identify with the, with the Maoist struggle. Uh, it came to me as, as no surprise when it finally happened, when we, when they got rid of the monarchy. It was an alliance between the Nepali Congress and the Maoists and the, uh, the Marxist-Leninists who had disavowed, to their credit, uh, had disavowed the Maoists as, as, as lunatics. Uh, they did not, they, the, the Marxist-Leninist party uh, was pretty clear when it, on its line for armed struggle against against the monarchy because they were pretty much being being very practical about, about the implications of an armed revolution in a country where the class lines are blurred because you're either working class or you're not because that that was the situation in Nepal there were very few rich people very few and and uh, the Maoists go, went around the country um, executing people for owning more than one cow. Because um, somehow that was uh, being a class trader. Uh, and it was, it was mayhem. It was, it, was, it was a murderous, murderous time. And I remember going to visit my granddad in a village where he used to live. And taking the bus and the bus routes. And then you would hear about how, you know, there was like they were bombing buses and they were uh, taking out um, men and women and they were like maiming school teachers for speaking out against the mindless violence that was happening in their communities which rightly so I mean uh, as, as school teachers uh, in Nepal in a country that's so illiterate there is um, there's special responsibilities that they have within their communities and they're regarded as very important figures Yet, they, the Maoists were not doing the left, uh, the socialists or the communists, any favors, any favors by, by the armed struggle because as a consequence of the armed struggle, they ended up in the government and they're still in the government. They're even now in the government after the most recent election. However, this new Nepal, Naya Nepal, we never saw it. And a lot of people who had picked up the guns when the Maoist struggle now regret it. They openly regret it and they, they keep it to themselves. They don't talk about it. They will not admit that they, they did such a thing. Um, however, however hurt I was in these developments in, in, in the country I lived in, um, 
I did not disavow uh, the struggle of the working class, which was pretty real, um, because I was raised by a single mother, uh, you know, working class, uh, still am, like, if I don't show up to work tomorrow, I might starve tomorrow, like, that's me, and that's a lot of folks back home, and, uh, and that kind of, I guess, you know, you get, a lot of Nepali people that were used to this exploitation actually now are turning full-on reactionary and wanting the monarchy back, and it breaks my heart, um, and like, like I promised, this segment was just going to be about Maoists and Maoist threats. Um, but I guess it's taken too much of my time to actually explain how we got to the point of, of this Maoist insurgency. Um, I should have planned that out well, I apologize. Uh, but in the next episode of, of, this, uh, of this podcast, uh, I, I will try to... Uh, talk about my own experiences uh, within the YCL, the Youth Communist League, which was uh, which was like a youth wing of, of the Maoist Party, which I was uh, active with briefly, and um, I will try to discuss uh, discuss uh, you know the um, the ins and outs of of the Vanguard political um, organization and why I think it's unhealthy. For comrades here in America, or just 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 organizers and activists here in America, to to adopt this uh, kind of like vanguardism, um, because it does set back an actual revolution and it does isolate working class people. Well, I've talked enough. So, until um, next time, this is Beth. And if you like this podcast. Uh, uh, yeah, like share it with your friends. Um, I know this is this was much longer than the first uh, few episodes I had. It's just gonna be one episode, I guess. But um, yeah, like share it around. And uh, I'm on Facebook. You can if if like a lot of people probably who are listening probably know me from Facebook. And like uh, if you have any questions about about you know other things. Um, like uh, the political developments that happened after and why did I, you know, actually side with the Maoists and why am I um, still a leftist even though, like, you know, you got you know, duped by the Maoist uh, party. Um, then, yeah, I'll take your questions. Maybe I'll address it in the next podcast. Um, maybe you can send me questions that I could, like, address in the next podcast. Um, yeah, let me know. Um, all right. Uh I got, I got to go to work, and uh, I hope uh, you guys enjoyed listening to me today. Um, peace out. Hi, this is Basco. The last time we talked about my childhood, and uh, in this session, I promised that we're going to uh, talk about the Maoist and the Maoist movement. Well, there's a lot of, like, um... um a lot of history to to um, to come to terms with the Maoist movement. I, uh, you have to. I'll have to talk to you about the last four or f- four or five decades of the history of Nepal. And sorry, I was lighting a cigarette. Um. 
so the last three or four decades of Nepal um, uh, have always been, a, you know, like ups and downs. This uh, country that was isolated for hundreds of years uh, just started opening up in the last century and uh, this century, actually. Um, it became a, a its most uh, its basis of survival had always been subsistence, or or joining up mercenary forces, or providing cheap labor to uh, rich foreigners, or you know, going to a foreign country and earning your wealth and like bringing it back. So that's that's quite the custom in Nepal now. Um, I mean, that at least that was for like a lot of like working class and lower middle class, like barely middle class people um, used to. And that's that's how they subsisted in Nepal. So you had like entire uh, families, entire households with just the mother and the children or the grandparents uh, living. And all of the money came from like foreign places, mostly the Middle East, like Kuwait, uh, Qatar, Bahrain, um, uh, Saudi Arabia where a lot of like cheap labor was needed uh, to you know, build stadiums and all these grandiose uh, buildings, so on. So, um, as I said, like Nepal was a monarchy and the monarchy had its own like uh, history of, of, of um, exploitation of the Nepali people. Although there are a lot of like reactionary elements in um, Nepali history that, that actually stem from um, from the, uh, the, the, uh, the monarchy, for example, the monarchy had always been in place, uh, through this rigid, um, um, idea of, of course, the divine rights of kings, which is where Alexander the Great got his idea of divine rights of kings was from, um, Hinduism, and Hinduism was the religion of, of Nepal, even though, like, when you think of Nepal, you like uh, one of the, my friends that I met in Ohio and he was like when I think of Nepal all I think of is uh, Buddhist monks and like bells and, 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 and like peaceful like you know like mountains and so on it's like eh, that couldn't be further from the truth um, even now there are like mob lynching and people like coming into like other people's houses and shooting them and, like you know cops dying whatever it's it was never a peaceful country although it did want it to be you know like it did forward a motion in the UN to be the zone of peace. Um, quite ironically, for a country that actually had a mouse insurgency going on, they wanted to declare the country a zone of peace and you know, a pacifist. Um, so yeah, that time was uh, characterized by um, the mouse insurgency. I'm talking from 1992 till 2010 almost was also characterized by, uh, by just mind-boggling violence. It was, and it, if you lived in the capital like I did, you were pretty far away from it, but sometimes it, it got there. It also got there. Uh, I remember uh, one of my, one of the kids I went to school with was, uh, you know, much, he was, he was very senior to me, and like a lot of great senior than me. And uh, his father was in the army, Colonel, Captain, I think, um, he got shot right in, right in the streets, through his head. Um, so yeah, it became, it became very violent, um, overnight. However, the Maoist movement was, had no qualms about killing people at all. 
that was their um the 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 way they brought about their revolution um yeah like let me delve into the history of nepal for a little bit in the next segment so i could like explain this better 